KMTT Ki Mitzion Tetzei Torah This is KMTT, the Torah podcast, and this is Ezra Beck, broadcasting from Yeshivat HaRetzion, English Etzion, in Eretz Yisrael. And today is Thursday, Yom Hey, Tet Zayin Adar. It's one day after Shushan Purim, it's one day after Shushan Purim, and two days after Purim. And we should remember that even though Purim is a very, very happy and joyous holiday, but Chazal says, When Adar, the Chodesh Adar, begins, one increases one's happiness, one's joy, one's celebration, Rashi explicitly says that that's because in Chodesh Adar comes Purim and afterwards Pesach. In other words, it's not that you prepare for Purim by celebrating from the beginning of Adar, but the entire season is a season of celebration, Pesach is a greater Geula than Purim. What Rashi is saying is that Purim is the precursor, is the beginning of Geulat Chodesh Nisan. And therefore, Mishinichnas Adam Avim Simcha applies even after Purim. So you should not decrease. You should not decrease your Simcha, your celebration after Purim. On the contrary, you maintain it throughout Chodesh Adar and even more will be in Chodesh Nisan, Chodesh HaGula, Chodesh Aviv, the springtime of redemption. So, we're still in a month of happiness. Today's shiur in Pashat HaShavua will be given by Harav Shlomo Dov Rosen. In this week's Pasha, Pasha's Kitisa, we read about the making of the Egel Azov. In this context, after the state where the people has been arranged and people are putting things back together again. Moshe Rabbeinu goes up to HaKadosh and asks for forgiveness for the people. In this context, we read of the 13 Midot Rachamim, the divine qualities of mercy. And amongst them we find two Midot which coming together seem quite extraordinary. The Rav Chesed, the Emet. Rav Chesed means great, bountiful, in loving kindness. Emet means truthful. It's quite hard for us to understand in what sense the word Emet could be a divine attribute of mercy if we have already found that the w- it is preceded with the words Rav Chesed. If God is full of divine kindness, why is the aspect of truth an additional quality? Were it to be in the other order, it would be easier for us to understand. I think trying to understand the relationship between truth and kindness, especially in the context where truth comes after kindness, brings us to a deeper understanding of, in a deeper sense, the place of truth in the relationship between Akhlesh and man, and also in the relationship between man and man. In Mishle, we read Chesed ve'emet al ya'azvucha al ya'azvucha kashem al ga'agrotecha kotvim al-luach libecha Kindness and truth should never leave you. And you ask yourself what meaning there could be to truth after the word kindness. In the same formulation that it exists in the Pasuk in this week's section. Now, some commentators don't see these 13 attributes necessarily of, as attributes of mercy. The Svana, for example, clearly understands that 
emet in this context is not a form of mercy. Rav Chesed, the Svona says, Matek lape Chesed bedino. God pushes over in, ju- in judging us towards the side of mercy and kindness. God has Rachmanus, has mercy for us up to a certain point, and then he demands, and then justice has to have its place. And this he connects to the idea that Chazal explained that God does not take a bribe. Even a good deed does not erase something bad a person has done. If this is the case, we ask ourselves, in all seriousness, what meaning there could be to emit as a divine attribute of mercy? And according to the Svarno, it comes out that there is, is not a form of mercy. It's a divine attribute if in anything moves in the opposite direction of mercy. However, the general understanding is that all 13 attributes are attributes of God relating to his kindness to us, his mercy to us in judgment. And this is opened up basically by the Gra on the Pasuk we brought before in Mishlei at the beginning of the third chapter, the second Pasuk, Chesed Vemet Ali Azvucha. The Gra says, Chesed Nikra Ma Adam Kindness is that which a person is not obligated to give to another. Vemet, truth, truth is when you give to your friend what you had to give to him, because, for example, he gave to you something before. That which by law you have to give, that which by right is his, that is called emet. And then he carries on with our question. According to this, there is no value whatsoever to truth because kindness had already been mentioned. He later brings the pasuk we have here and he explains that Rav Chesed relates to much kindness because when a person gives out a kindness, he gives a lot more. When a person gives because of truth, it is only exactly what the person should have received. And then he explains these pasukim. Here, differently, of course, to the Svarno, that emet is the additional amount of goodness that God does not give because of kindness, but because really of what we did good, um, paying us back, so to say, even after the loving kindness. And so that on the grow we have to ask our question, why emet should come after chesed? Because it makes much more sense, of course, to have them in the other order. So, of course, with the grow it would be because there would be a reason to suggest, to assume, to mistakenly think that if already loving kindness has already come, then emet wouldn't have much of a place. And so we have to try and understand what that would mean, why we should have thought otherwise, otherwise, and what value there is to emet coming after chesed. And I would suggest that it's slightly more than how the Gro presents it, that it's a bit more because of emet, but that there's a fundamental meaning to emet, to truth, coming after chesed, after loving kindness. There's something particular and additional in the idea of truth coming after the idea of kindness, that which God gives because um, we by right, if we can possibly say that, uh, should receive something, uh, because we have done something good, um, and not just because of divine kindness. Now, if we widen our discussion to ask, 
what this means, generally speaking, about God's relationship with us, we find that in Judaism and Jewish thought, generally speaking, you have a very important connection between the ideas of Rachamim and Din, which is crucial to the whole way we understand Hashkacha, God's interaction with human beings in a providential manner, and very, very different to many of the other theologies around us. So if the Rambam in the third volume of Mornavuchim, the Guide for the Perplexed, brings in the 17th chapter where he talks about Hashkacha, brings the position of the Asharei and the Ma'atazla, which are very similar in certain, position, certain aspects to, in this order, certain Protestant forms of thought and certain Eastern forms of thought, and then presents Judaism against them, it is very much to some extent um, moving around this issue that the Matazla, or to some extent Protestant thought, de- develops the idea of divine grace, but not by the rights that a human being has because of his behavior, but because God um, acts to us in a manner of um, mercy beyond what we could in any way ask for or have rights for. If so, when you develop this idea to the extreme, it comes out that there's no rhyme or reason why God does one thing for one person and one thing for somebody else. He just chooses who he will have Rahmanus on. Divine grace is eternal, um, infinite, but not at all connected to any rhyme or reason or form of judgment. This, of course, has changed slightly in all forms of theology, but the basic idea is fundamentally different to Yahadut. The basic idea is that there's no attempt to center around the concept of justice as the prime reason for Rachamim, because Rachamim would stand irrelevant of Emet. Basically, Chesed stands in the place of Emet. You can't have both. Once you have one, the other one falls away. And that's basically the, effect you, the impression you get from the next position, the Matazla, which is actually to some extent similar to certain Eastern religions that we uh, are aware of nowadays, that said that everything goes by wisdom, not by grace. That is to say that everything goes by what is fair. Even an animal who dies, it's because God is going to reward him in the next world for his suffering here. It's not connected, therefore, to the choice to do good, because even in animals, the world runs that way according to this particular position the Rambam brings. And therefore, you can't exactly talk about any form of chesed, but rather a certain kind of emet, but an emet which is not connected in any way to tzedek or mishpat, and therefore not connected in any fundamental way to chesed, and it's a very different kind of emet, it's what the Rambam calls chokhmah, by wisdom, but not really by fairness in any deep sense. Now, the Rambam explains there, in the 17th chapter of the third volume of the Morin of Uchim, of the Guide for the Perplexed, that the Jewish position is fundamentally opposed to these claims, that we understand that although we don't see how it always works, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu runs our world in a manner of mishpat and tzedek. Kel emunah If we can't see it, it's our problem. But really, ultimately, everything goes by the rules of fairness, fairness in the sense of justice by how we have behaved. Obviously, this is tempered by a certain amount of chesed, um, which the Raman does not develop there. However, if we realize... Uh, what the Rambam is saying. He's basically trying to explain that both of these positions 
are falling off on the side in one direction or the other, not able to see how Chesna and Emet can come together. Um, now, the Ramchal in Mishrat Yisharim develops an understanding that ultimately everything is a question of Emet, and ultimately everything is a question of justice, but that Rachamim of God, God's mercy, intervenes by certain rigid rules of fairness. That is to say, that really, theoretically, a person should be punished and immediately collapse as soon as he went against what HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, because he has rebelled against the creator of the world. But HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives him time, and he lets his tshuva process be a form of punishment instead. Let's the person bring it down in scale, in time, given time in order to turn around of his own accord and not receive the punishment and not receive it in the same manner. However, in the same way that he rewards everything that a person does good, also, by definition, um, his justice demands that a person um, is punished for what he did wrong if he is not able to do tshuva at some point in time. So here we have the marriage of Chesed and Emet coming together, that Chesed comes around to close up around, to change the style and the nature of Emet, but Emet still has to stand in its entirety, as it really um, as it really takes a place in this world, a question of Din, uh, and not just a question of Rachman. And this, of course, is connected to the famous discussion in Chazal about Shem Yudke Vavke, which is connected to Rachamim, and Shem Elokim, which is connected to Din, and Chesed, and Gevura, and how HaKadosh Baruch Hu wanted to create the world with one, with the other, and the two need to run together. And this is basically an explanation of how that could work, how we understand that to work. The Ran um, develops in a similar, parallel context, a very similar idea, talking about the idea of Subjective and objective truth. That is to say, that God has an objective truth that often when learning Torah and trying to see how to behave in reality, we cannot always be in contact with, we cannot always understand an objective truth. Instead, our minds can give us a subjective truth and that is for him what the Sugya and the Gemara of Tanosh talking about explaining the idea that that the Torah is no longer in the heavens, it has come down to earth. What it means that it's come down to earth is that the Torah works by the subjective truth of man. Now for the Ran, in Rashot Ran, this is a way of explaining why even when we are mistaken, it's certainly still the correct thing to do. Um, running on the assumption presumably that we are generally not mistaken. However, these ideas that the Ran, the Ran developed um, or developed somewhat further by, uh, in the time of the Achron, in the last few hundred years, by people like the Ketzot Achoshen, based on Kabbalistic ideas. And the Ketzot, in his Hakdama, in his introduction to his book, he discusses the problem of Chidush, that we know that when we are innovative in learning, we often say things that perhaps were not how, um, how the subject matter was understood in previous generations. And the question is how you can know, because to lie, to come to something which is not true by your own pure subjectivity is, of course, a terrible thing, and how these things can, can be brought together is a fundamental problem. And he brings the Mama Chazal that talks about the idea that HaKadosh Baruch creating the world needed truth and needed Rachamim and that he had to throw truth to the ground in order to create the world. The world has to be built out of mercy and cannot be built only out of truth. 
human beings will not be able to stand in the face of truth alone. And for him, this issue connects directly with what the Ran has been saying, that there's a form of subjective truth, and he develops the idea based on Mama, the Ma'ala Chazal, of course with very mystical ideas in the background, that Emet Me'eretz Titzmach, the truth grows out of the earth, we could understand the Mama Chazal simply to say that this is a proof that got through it to the earth, but as far as the Qasad is concerned, this is a proof of the subjective value of Torah, that Torah has to grow out of the earth, in other words, out of our own uh, reality, a very subjective reality, which is connected to our abilities, uh, connected to our kind of existence, and not a completely objective theoretical existence that God uh, has on high out of our physical world. Now, for the Ktsot, this is very, very important that you shouldn't misunderstand and think that because of that you can do just, just what you like. The Ktsot is innovative within the halakhic system, and he explains that this, is, of course, depends on the fact that you've checked yourself several times and you find that your ideas are along the lines of the ideas of those who came before you, and then you can understand that your own subjectivity is playing within the field of Jewish thought and is part of the Masorah. And then you can say that your subjectivity and your own innovation in itself is the definition of the Torah, of course, only on the conditions that you're playing within the rules of the meaning of the, uh, of the corpus of knowledge and form of thinking that uh, has preceded you and that you are continuing. If you think about what this means for our discussion, it's fundamental that the Ketzot brings in the run into our issue, uh, discussion of the relationship between Chesed and Emet. That truth for us is a subjective truth which is affected, tinted, changed in color and style by the idea of Chesed that precedes it, that comes to clothe it. And now we can understand what it means for Emet to come after Chesed. Okay? we go now to another stage of thinking what that might mean for our behavior. Let's try and develop the ideas of the gra, and then we can move over later to the ksot. The impression you would get is like this, that a person in relationship to a friend, one person to another, often feels that because there is a good relationship, they would like to behave to the other with a lot of chesed. And the question is, does this erase the possibility of emet? And I would argue that that's exactly, to some extent, what's in the Gura there, the Vilna Gaon's explanation of the Pasuk Mishle, and otherwise I would suggest is, is perhaps the meaning of the, the Pasuk Mishle, that Chesed should never take away the necessity and the meaning of Emet in a relationship between people and also a relationship between God and man. There will always be a place for the rights and the obligations of one to the other, even after you have done good to the person beyond expectation. That is to say, that you have been incredibly kind. Still, there are certain demands, rights, and obligations you have towards your friend that might be much less than what you feel you have already given, but still stand in their own rights. A person who is very, very kind to somebody else still has to feel that he has certain obligations towards that person, that he cannot waver because he has already been very, very kind beyond the call of duty. Beyond the call of duty is a great thing, but it's not something which can erase our responsibilities to each other. Otherwise, law and order would all fall away. And any sense of responsibility and something that people can depend upon would no longer stand because everybody is just too friendly. You would maybe get some kind of communist state where everybody is very kind, uh, on the condition, of course, that everybody stays in contact and has use for each other. And the second that things fall away, there were no responsibilities and no rights and no obligations in society. And therefore, 
in marriage, in friendship, between people, in all forms of responsibility, you will never be able to erase the aspect of emet through chesed. Perhaps that's what the Pasuk is trying to teach us. How does this connect, not just to these Pasukim in this week's Sedra, but to the Sedra generally speaking? I would like to argue that the whole build of our Sedra, actually the whole, all the Pashiyot in this area of Shemot, are built around, to some extent, the idea of chesed v'emet, in this form, that emet has to be clothed in chesed, and then the next stage is to realize that even within emet, there is another form of chesed that comes in even within the judgment. And this, of course, is connected to the whole question, how and why um, the, the issue of the building of the Egel could be brought in such an obscure manner in the middle of a pasha like our week's Sedra, after two weeks where it seemed, two or three weeks where we've been reading about other issues which are connected to Matan Torah and connected to Mitzvot, thrown in here just before the building of the Mishkan, after we've been come on, in a kind of obscure manner, almost hidden in a certain sense. What does this hiding mean? Obviously everyone's going to find it. What meaning could there be in hiding something if it's going to be found? And I'd like to connect this to another issue, which is that Shabbat continuously comes up in the context of the building of the Mishkan. And Chazal explained that the laws of Shabbat are learned from the laws of the building of the Mishkan. Obviously, philosophically, there are a lot of connections in the sense that Shabbat is connected to the creation of the world. The Mishkan is a kind of creation of the world, a kind of Shabbat, but it doesn't go against Shabbat, etc. But you do bring Kobanot in the Beit Mikdash, and this is connected to various Machshavti, uh, and um, that is, say, both philosophical and halacha. Londa's forms of, uh, of learning and connecting between the two in the types of tzivuyin. It comes up in the Akhtama of the, in the Ptichah uh, of the Egleital to his Sefin Hulchot Shabbat. However, um, on the level of understanding our week's pa- this week's Pasha in this particular context, we find something particularly obscure here in the sense that it's done in an incredibly obvious manner and seems to be saying something slightly beyond that. Just before we talk, we read about the making of the Egel, of the golden calf. We read about Shabbat. And just at the end, at the beginning of the next week's Pasha, we read again about Shabbat. That is to say, the the creation of the golden calf and God's mercy for us in that context, but still with judgment, is brought not just sandwiched between the orders and the halachot of creating the of making the mishkan and the actual making which come afterwards, but actually also sandwiched between hilchot shabbat, the rules coming to teach us uh, how to keep shabbat and the centrality of shabbat. And in this context, perhaps we should read the sukim that come just before the egel. And I think the message that's coming in about shabbat is very uh, pivotal in this context. ויאמר השם אל משה לאמור, ואתה דבר אל בני ישראל לאמור, speak to the Jewish people saying, אך את שבתותיי תשמרו. You must keep my Shabbat. אך. כי עוד היא ביני וביניכם. Why? Because, why is it so incredibly crucial to keep Shabbat? Because it is a, some type of proof of my relationship with the Jewish people. Forever and ever, to know through the keeping of Shabbat that I am God who sanctifies you. The people keep Shabbat. It is an everlasting proof 
statute between me and the Jewish people. In other words, we keep Shabbat because the world was created, and this is not connected to the Jewish people. But the fact that we keep Shabbat, copying God in His resting and stopping at the end of the physical development, maybe showing the importance of the spiritual development that comes from the physical, and that the physical doesn't have a meaning in itself, that uh, idea is particularly crucial and particular to the Jewish people and connected to the idea of the relationship and a proof of the relationship between God and the Jewish people. Uh, Ot can also be understood something to remind us, like Tefillin. It is a remembrance as well. It is a proof to ourselves of our relationship. It's very much connected to the idea of relationship. These are clearly the Pesukim in the Torah which develop the idea of the relationship between God and the Jewish people on the issue of Shabbat coming uh, to expression. And now we can start to understand why not just being sandwiched between the ideas of the Mishkan, but even more particularly sandwiched between the ideas connected to Shabbat and particularly the idea of Shabbat which is relation, related to the concept of a relationship between God and man, between God and the Jewish people, is crucial to the presentation of the terrifying um, story of, of making the golden calf just after Matan Torah. That is to say that the Jewish people broke in a certain manner their relationship with God and God forgave them and with justice in a merciful manner carried on the relationship. And a way of showing that is to show that this is sandwiched between the the ideas of the Mishkan which are about how the relationship between human beings and God on Har Sinai, on Mount Sinai, continues through HaKadosh Baruch Hu bringing His Shekhinah, His divine glory, into the Jewish people on a normative manner, in a daily sense, through the creation of a Mishkan, a form of a temple within the Jewish people, bringing the Shekhinah into the Jewish people, and more particularly the idea of Shabbat, which is connected to us also nowadays, that we have a relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, which is a proof of his relationship with us. Every week, one day a week, showing how God sanctifies us, this idea, being able to stand in the face of our terrible mistakes, even when we, in some sense, left God at the crucial moment. He was able to bring us back to him and prove the continuation of the relationship through the idea of Shabbat, in a larger sense, through the idea of the Mishkan. In that sense, the whole story of the making of the Egel is sandwiched in this context of Chesed. Chesed in the sense of a relationship, bringing Emet into that relationship of Chesed. That's to say that in Jewish thought we understand that the divine providence, Hashkacha, functions in a, as in a form of justice, in the context of chesed. But there's another form of chesed, the chesed that comes in the middle of emet. In other words, it is sandwiched, but it also comes in the middle, and that's exactly what we are reading, the 13 attributes, divine attributes of chesed, are those that come sandwiched in the middle, and here we can understand how emet really is a form of mercy and rachamim, that God continues this relationship and stands this relationship up in its full meaning, in the context of chesed, also in the positive sense. Because he does it also in 
quote-unquote the negative, that's say in the judgment sense, it's also in the positive sense, out of rachamim. That is to say that just as us in our relationships with other people, we have the obligations of emet even beyond the obligations of chesed, so God relates to us. He remembers the zechut of Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov. Moshe Rabbeinu stands up in front of HaKadosh Baruch Hu in the middle of this crucial and terrible, terrifying moment and reminds him of his responsibility to Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, so, and so, so, so to say, or his responsibility to his name in the world. There are questions of emet that stand up in the middle together with chesed, which are forms of chesed, which are forms of mercy, which are connected to the idea of truth the idea of rights, the idea of obligations, even in the context of terrible um, terrible leaving of God. Uh, now, if we just conclude and bring some of these issues together, we realize that the idea of rachamim, of chesed, coming inside emet, but being circled and being sandwiched up in the context continuously of a relationship between human beings and God, is something that we are being taught by HaKadosh Baruch Hu in the manner that Hashkacha works. It's the fundamental idea that other forms of theology miss. That is to say that the world doesn't function just by infinite kindness, which of course will then not apply to all human beings, quite naturally. Um, it doesn't matter. It doesn't f- work just as a as an idea of divine grace which can fall on anybody just because of no particular reason, but it's because of, it works by mishpat, it works by justice, and yet this justice is tempered continuously with chesed, with rachamim, with mercy. Um, if it was mercy alone, infinite kindness, there would be no place to justice. And therefore there would also be no meaning for a human being existing. He wouldn't understand what his function in the world would be, except for just to receive divine grace without any value or meaning. It is rather that there is infinite kindness in the context of justice. It's not infinite in the sense that it can receive anything, receive the excess of any delight. It is infinite in the sense that it is able even to come into a very rigid system. And this is deeply connected to the idea that the Ketzot developed in the explanation of innovation in, in Jewish thought of a subjective truth working within the rules of truth. To some extent this is exactly connected to what we are saying that our relationship with HaKadosh is always a relationship of the subjective human existence. Our subjective human existence having its own form of truth. It's not the objective truth. We're not able to stand in the face of objective truth. But on the other hand, that does not mean it's purely mercy. And it's just a form of divine grace, infinitely answering to anything, and therefore taking away the meaning of human endeavor. Rather, it is an ish, a question of divine judgment, deeply and very deeply connected to the ideas of chesed, sandwiched up within chesed, dressed in the clothes of chesed, and also bringing chesed into the judgment itself, like the Ramchal explained at the beginning. And that is the meaning, basically, of emet coming after chesed. That emet has something to say after chesed, and has a different meaning after chesed. And it is even a midat rachamim in this context. It is not just a question of terrible judgment. It's a question of judgment 
in the context of humanity. You have been listening to Arash Lomo Dov Rosein on Pashat HaShavua, Pashat Kitisa. Today is Halakha Yomit. We continue in Hilchot Tfilah. Tfilah, meaning Shmon every time I speak about Tfilah, in the next couple of Halakhot, next couple of days, Tfilah, classical Tfilah means Shmon Esrei. Tfilah is said Me'umad, is said standing. The Rambam includes this Halakha of standing in a chapter in which he lists eight things which one should do when one does, but if one doesn't do, it's okay. So it's l'chatchila and not b'diavet. It doesn't destroy, it doesn't take away, it doesn't negate the kiyuma mitzvah of, of tefillah. And one of them is amida. Let me say right away, because this will apply to today's shiur, and I think to quite a number of the coming shiurim, and also to some of the previous shiurim, we talked about tikkun makom. All these halachot basically come down to one principle. And that is that tefillah is defined as amida lifnei hamelech, standing before the king. And you should understand that in, in, in a medieval sense, even before medieval, in, in an ancient sense. Standing before the king is not standing before a powerful person of whom you are afraid, standing before the president, standing before the dictator. Kingship is, is, is something which has ceremonial importance. Standing before the king means you have an audience before the king. And therefore, for instance, you have to dress in a certain way and you have to stand. You don't, you don't sit in the king's presence because it indicates a certain comfortableness and, and, and unimportance and lack of importance, lack of respect, which is inappropriate. When it could be that if you met with the president, you would sit in his lounge. When you meet before the king, it's an audience. The king sits, you stand. It's hard for us to understand this today because we're so far removed from, from the, the ceremony, the, the, the laws of court, the laws of, of royalty, uh, the practices of royalty, which were once inherent, I think, in everybody in the world. But you have to put yourself into that frame of mind when davening. So one of those laws is Amidah. You have to stand. The Gemara has a story about Rav Ashi who davened when he was sitting, and later on, he davened again when he was standing. Tostos there seems to imply that that's a halacha. That if for some reason you have to sit, because the halacha is that if you can't stand for one reason or another, you're allowed to sit. Nonetheless, when you have a chance later on, you should daven standing. What is the example in the Gemara of someone who davens when he's sitting? So the Gemara's case is someone who is traveling. The Gemara's case, traveling on a donkey. You're riding on a donkey. The Gemara says you don't have to stop, get off the donkey and stand. In fact, you don't even have to stand, meaning arrest, the movement of the donkey. The word amida in Hebrew has two meanings. It means to stand as opposed to sit, and it means to stand as opposed to go. Omeid v'loh So neither one of those two things you have to do. You can continue riding on the donkey, and say shmanetri on the donkey. Even though the halacha requires that the chatechila one should stand, and one should stand in one place when, when davening. There are two reasons for this halacha. And it's important to distinguish between them. One reason is because it's, it's, it's basically a cooler. If you're, you're traveling, and let's say you're traveling with a bunch of other people, and they don't want to stop, and it's difficult for you to stop as well, you'll be late. So you're allowed, you're allowed 
because you need to keep going, you're allowed to keep going and remain on the donkey and not stand. But the Poskim had a further reason. And they said that if you would stand, it would affect your kavanah. Because you're traveling someplace, first of all, for other people, they might await for you. Now, it's not talking about that it's dangerous. If it's Bikuch Nefesh, then that's simple. It's not Bikuch Nefesh. You're not going to get killed if you're alone because it's a dangerous place. You must stay with the rest of the caravan. However, the fact that other people leave you and you don't have to catch up with them is uncomfortable. It's mentally uncomfortable and that affects your Kavanah. And Kavanah is more important than the ceremony of davening. So remember, Amidah Lifnei Amelach has to do with ceremonial. It's the proper way. It's the, it shows the proper attitude. But Kavanah is the life. Is the soul of davening, and and to stop on the side of the road will affect your kavana. In fact, even if there isn't any other people, there is no caravan. But but the post can believe that someone who is going somewhere, he's rushing, it's on his mind. That's what he set out to do. If he stops, so it'll affect his kavana. He'll be thinking all the time about how the minutes that he's losing, and therefore you should or you may, you can, and perhaps you should. Once we introduce the principle of kavana, then it's not merely a cooler, a dispensation. You may daven while traveling on the donkey. But in fact, maybe even you should because it's better to daven with kavana on the donkey than daven without kavana while standing on the side. Or standing on the side of the road. So, the Gemara says of Ashi, when he got to where he was going, he davened again. And from Tosus, in his epistle, implied other Rishon as well, who say that that's a chiyuv. And that's how the Machab and the Shulchan Aruch paskins. The one who davened sitting because he was traveling, let's update it a bit, you were traveling in a car, and you're going somewhere, and it's not a simple matter to stop. You know it'll affect your kavana, or the driver doesn't want to stop. To ask him to stop, that'll surely affect your kavana. You feel bad, you know that he, he, he's not happening. Uh, so you, you feel the pressure of the other people. So in all those cases, the Gemara says that you should dive in, uh, you should dive in, in the car, sitting. But then the Machabah passage, when you get to where you're going, you should dive in again. Many, many, many poskim disagree. The original case of Avashi can be explained in one of two other ways. Either it can be explained, and this is what appears to be from Avashi, that Avashi did it, it was Tchilat Nadavah. Avashi felt bad. He wanted to daven again. He wanted to daven properly. He wasn't chayif. He wasn't obligated to daven again. He daven again. There's no such chayif. Other poskim say that, in fact, Avashi's case was a different case, that while davening, while traveling, he felt he didn't have kavana. And Medina de Gemara, Meikah de Dina, according to the Halacha, which we don't normally follow today, but according to the real Halacha, one who dabbles without Kavanah is not Yotzeh, has to daven again. Why don't we do this today? Parentheses. The Ramah Paz claims that we never, we never daven with Kavanah today. So therefore there's no point in davening again because you won't do it any better. Strange Halacha, a little bit of a cynical attitude towards Tefillah. But Halacha Lemaisa, because Kavanah is so hard to achieve, we don't normally daven again for lack of Kavanah. But, they explain the Vashi's case that way. In any event, davening sitting with Kavana, they claim, would not obligate one to daven again. And in fact, some folks will say that even, you can't even daven a tefillat n'davah again. Because again, we don't daven tefillat n'davah today normally. We don't have an extra tefillat, voluntary tefillat. And therefore, you are Yotzeh. If you are Yotzeh, you cannot daven again. That's the Psaq of the Taz and the Maganavam and the Mishnah Bura later on and, the, uh, and many, many other Pofkim. That one should not pass like the Shulchan Aruch. The Ramayad, incidentally, does not disagree with the Shulchan Aruch. But later, Achonim do, uh, and they, and they pass when one does not daven again, if one daven sitting the first time. Halacha Lamaisa, I think, has a lot of ramifications. 
in, if you're in a car, let's say you're traveling somewhere, if you're the driver, so uh, it's a common minhag to see people stopping their car and diving, diving on the side of the road. I think that's acceptable, but there is a problem there. I mean, I've done it many times myself. You don't necessarily have the most kavana in the world. It does affect your kavana. To dive on the side of the road in a public place, wide open, you're a little bit nervous, you're looking around, making sure nobody steals your car or nobody drives into you. And one should definitely do it in a manner which will eliminate as many of those factors as possible. And a more common case, which I think it's very questionable if the common minute is correct, is while on a plane. And while traveling on planes, plane goes to Israel, it's quite common to see people going to the back of the plane making a minion. So one, they want to dive with a minion. That's one thing. Two, they want to dive standing up. The standing up there is very, very problematic. It definitely does not contribute to your kavana for a number of reasons. First of all, because it's difficult to stand. There are other people passing by. the stewardesses, other people. You're being all the time getting in the way of people. And you, you can have ten times more kavana sitting in your place. Two, we had a lecha a few weeks ago, and I mentioned two weeks ago, that we should not dive on a high place which many poskim add, aside from the reason given in the Gemara, of mima'amakim kratich Hashem, that simply being low is part of the nature of addressing God, but that standing on a stool, on a small high thing, is a pan for because you don't have proper balance. Anyone who's ever tried to dive on a plane knows that you don't have proper balance. The plane is pitching all the time, and part of your mental concentration is dedicated to standing, to holding on, as opposed to as opposed to tefillah. So for those reasons, it's, it's clear that Al-Pidin is better to dive in sitting in one's place than, than standing in the back of the plane. That's without discussing the question of diving with the Minyan, which we discussed in the past, which might indeed uh, uh, count here. Although, personally, I think the case is so extreme, the lack of Kavani is so extreme, and it's true. Not to mention the fact that people dive next to the bathroom, there's a smell, etc., etc. There are a lot of problems involved here. It, it really would appear that it's much better to dive in uh, while sitting in your place with proper Kavana. And then the question of, does one daven again, if one, daven, if one lands in time, does one daven again? Those people who pass can like the Shulchan Aruch, add that not only should you daven again if you land, or you get to where you're going in time, but even if you get after the time, but within one time slot, the next filah, you could daven tashlumen. You could, let's say you miss, you daven shachlet sitting, you could daven mincha twice standing. So again, most can disagree uh, with the Shulchan Aruch, and Paskin against the Shulchan Aruch in this case and say you should not daven again, nor should you daven a tefillat and dava. Uh, and that's really, that, that, that quantum of Toskin is the halacha, halacha lemaseh. Before I mention the case of traveling in a car, I think it applies there as well. Although sometimes one can manage. But again, managing here, it's not, it's not a question merely of, okay, I could have a cooler, I could daven sitting, or I could be a better Jew, I could daven standing. The way the Toskin understands halacha is that you can have a better davening sitting, and a worse davening standing, you gain standing, but you lose kavanah. And if we take kavanah seriously, that should be a very, very serious factor. Uh, if you're hitching, if you're, you're taking a hitch with somebody, or somebody who you know is, is not as concerned about your tefillah as you would be, so that really does weigh on one's mind. And the case of Chazal is no different. You're riding on a donkey, Chazal thought your own worry about getting to where you're going on time would affect your kavanah, and they therefore thought it's better to daven while riding than to take off the few minutes to take to daven and to, and to daven while standing. There is one caveat that should be, ant, uh, should be added. 
Some poskim say that the first bracha, the kat avot, about which the Gemara says it's the most important to have kavana, so that if possible, one should stand for that. In other words, it's a very small amount of time. They say while riding on your donkey, maybe you don't have to get off, but you should arrest, you should halt the movement of the donkey, at least for the katavot, and then continue. And the assumption that that won't have that great an effect on your kavana, in the country you can have more kavana by standing than by traveling, especially since it's for a very short period of time. Some posts can hold that. If if possible, that would be a good idea. But uh, essentially, the halacha prefers tefillah with kavana with less ceremony than tefillah with less kavana and more ceremony. That's all for today. We'll be back tomorrow with the program for Arab Shabbat, Pashat Kitisa. My guest tomorrow will be Harav Moshe Lichtenstein. Until then, call to Ivdu Hashem B'Simcha. You've been listening to KMTT, Ki Mitzion Teitzei Torah, Udvar Hashem Mirushalayim.